Good morning, church family. So good to see you today. Good to be with you. Thankful for all of you joining us online. For all of you who may be first-time guests, we're so glad you're with us. Happy Father's Day. I know I woke up this morning with so much gratitude in my heart, both from my dad and from my father-in-law, Casey's dad. Both of our dads, were they broke cycles. My grandfather was an alcoholic until the last five years of his life. His entire adult life until the last five years, and he died when I was 16 years old. My grandfather would drink no less than 12 beers a day. So my dad grew up in a very dysfunctional family. And when it came to how my dad was a dad, he, he had had other role models in his life. But sometimes he just had to do the opposite of, of what he saw done. Casey grew up. Her dad didn't have a dad. And uh, as he was an early teenager, he became the man of his house. So for both of our dads, much of their life, like God... They found God, and maybe a better, better said God found them. They showed them the light of Christ, and now there is this legacy of faith that they have left with us. I, I know there are those of you in the room, and some of you, this is a day of grief. You may, you may, when you think of your dad, it may be someone who wasn't there. It may be, abuse may come to mind or neglect. Some of you, your, your father has passed away, and this is a day you would do anything just to hear your dad's voice one more time. And I know for, for many of us, it is a day full of gratitude that we wouldn't be who we are. And for those of you who are blessed with dads who cared and dads who poured into you, and uh, don't take it for granted what it means to have a great dad. Uh, can we just give it up for the dads in the room? Uh, thank you. And, and a number of you have been father figures to a number of us. Thank you. Uh, yesterday was Juneteenth, a uh, great celebration that we had here. And one thing I love about this church is that we want to tell good stories and we want to live good stories. And I'm so glad, uh, grateful for how yesterday went. And Julie, I know you deflect stuff like this when it comes to affirmation being given to you. I know you deflect it. You don't want it. Uh, and Julie is the leader of our Rev 7-9, our ministry team that centers around reconciliation. And Julie, I just want to tell you that we would not be... It is, it's all God. But Julie, I wouldn't be who I am. Agape wouldn't be who it is. Your presence here in Memphis makes Memphis a better place. And we love you. We learn from you. Hey, and if you, if you want a good laugh today, go up to Julie and say, how many different ways have people pronounced your last name in your life? Julie Sano, Sanon, Salmon. You got a salmon one time. Someone, somebody look at your last name and they got a salmon. We, we love you, Julie. And I, we've already given uh, Anna and everybody who participated in VBS. Look, you can't do VBS if you don't have kids. And then you can't have VBS if you don't have a bunch of volunteers and dozens of you showed up and showed out. And you can't have VBS if you don't have a leader. And Anna is up in children's worship right now, but one of Anna's disciplines is every Sunday night or Monday morning, she jumps on, she listens to the sermon because she wants to stay engaged with what is forming in the life of our church. So tomorrow morning or tonight, Anna's going to listen to this sermon, and I want hear, her to hear you give her an applause right now, thanking her for the leadership that she does. Now, I, I missed out on all the events this past week as I was preaching at a church camp up in York, Nebraska, where about 400 kids were there, about 150 youth ministers and, and adult volunteers. And this past week, I got to witness 33 teenagers surrender their lives to Jesus in baptism. It was phenomenal. I saw hundreds, hundreds of teenagers who were confessing things. There was a revival that broke out in York, Nebraska. 
And today my mind is blown, my heart is full. And I'll tell you this, I've, I've been able to preach a few places the last few weeks, but there's nowhere I'd rather preach than where, where, where I have done this over 800 times over the last 15 years. So right now I'm asking you, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to begin at the very end of Ephesians 6. And Renee, if you'll throw up Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 uh, and 13. And here's what it says. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And therefore, verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. And I want to stay there just for a moment because if you make notes in your Bible, I want you to highlight verse 11 and verse 13. Some of your Bibles have full armor or whole armor. It's literally like complete armor. It's everything. So I want you to get, get what Paul's trying to say two different times that you can't just go into battle or get dressed like with some stuff. Like you, you got to put the whole thing on. All of it. The full armor of God. And if you throw up the next slide, here's what it, here's what it says right here. Here's the, the armor of God that is described verses 14 through 17. And it begins with the belt of truth. And every time I read the armor of God, I kind of chuckle right there because none of us begin our days by putting on our belt first. It's usually the last thing you put on. But with the armor of God, it's the first thing you put on. It's, it's the truth. Like in the core of who you are is, is truth. It's the belt of truth. And then you put on the breastplate of righteousness, so what it is that guards your heart and your core of who you are. And then there are feet, and it's not just like shoes you put on your feet, but they are fitted. If you notice that in your Bible, they, they're fitted, like you were lacing them up because you were preparing for something. And then you got the shield of faith because we need something to protect us against all the flaming arrows of the enemy. And then you have the helmet of salvation. And then you have the sword of the Spirit, the full armor of God. Now, if you look in your Bible or you're looking on the screen right now at that right there, the armor of God, right there when you see the armor of God and you think about what it means to get dressed with all that, the full armor, right there we are left to ask, what do we put it on for? Like, now what? Like, what do we do with it? Like, is this a defensive posture that now we're shrinking back from the world and we're just protecting ourselves against all the arrows of the enemy? Is this like Buckingham Palace? Like you become a guard who is just standing still, standing strong, like you're just looking like a soldier? Is this, some people have used this in the past when there, there were crusades led by Christians. Like you put on the armor of God so that you go and you fight and you even kill in the name of Jesus. So what are you getting dressed for? The city of Ephesus had major challenges to the Christian faith. Over two dozen pagan temples, Temple Diana, which was known as one of the seven wonders of the world in first century culture, Every year there was a keg fest that would rival what would happen like a Mardi Gras in New Orleans every year. People would just come to Ephesus and for days they would just get drunk. According to Acts chapter 19, it's a city full of witchcraft and magic. So when you think about all the challenges to Christianity that they face in Ephesus, and then you see how Paul ends the book of Ephesians with the armor of God. Ephesians 6 is preparation for engagement. That you prepare the right way, dress accordingly, you engage in mission. And it's very clear in Ephesians 6 who the enemy is. In Ephesians 6 verse 12 it says this, that for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You fight for the mission of God, not for the preservation of any empire. You fight for the gospel of Jesus. 
So we do not get dressed to shelter in place, but to engage with courage. It's to move into the world. And one thing you see in Acts 19 and in the book of Ephesians is Paul is modeling and teaching that we engage in culture without getting lost in culture wars. If you see where the gospel exploded in the city of Ephesus, it's ha- it happened in theaters and it happened in halls where there were philosophers who would gather. It happened in secular places. So, so the Christians and Paul, they didn't model a life of protesting all the secular things or protesting things that don't line up with Christianity. It was that Christianity was going to go and make a difference. Like we are dressing right and we're moving into the world. And today we live in a time where cancel culture is all around us. There ain't nothing people in America won't cancel. We've canceled Aunt Jemima. We have canceled uh, comedians. We have canceled Disney. We have canceled uh, Chick-fil-A, which uh, do you really believe people really cancel Chick-fil-A? They do publicly, but DoorDash, you know it's showing up with Chick-fil-A at their house, right? Uh, we cancel churches, pastors. Like There's nothing we won't cancel. And, and culture wars are all around us. This us versus them culture, and we engage, we've got to learn to engage. We've got to keep engaging the culture without getting lost in culture wars. What I'm preaching on this, this, this morning, what I'm preaching on this isn't just any topic for me. Like this matters because I believe so much in who Jesus has called the church to be. And I think we all know that like we don't live in a time where we can just hope that people will come find the church and therefore they will find Jesus. And maybe they'll wake up and just come into the doors of the church on a Sunday morning. Like we have to be the church that is going into the world. And if we allow culture wars to shape how we think about people, how are we going to be the kind of people God has called us to be in the world? Which sometimes forces us to ask, what group am I really loyal to? Uh, Casey and I went to Abilene Christian University, and I bet they still do this today, like the opening chapel every year. And I, I used to love this. A few of us in the room, we went to ACU. I used to love this. They had a parade of flags. And this was awesome. Like music would play, and then students who represented dozens of countries who went to ACU, like they would go first, and they would come in, like they would name their flag, and then you would see them walk in with their flag. And then there's students from all 50 states who go to ACU, and all states were named, and you know, you would walk out, and people would cheer for their state. So of course, there are a lot of people at ACU who are from Oklahoma and California, and some from Tennessee. And then the last state, they went in alphabetical order, but they always went to do Texas last. And when Texas was named, man, the flag would wave and the place would go crazy. Like South Dakota, Rhode Island, you have like one person in the room, but Texas, they got a bunch of people in the room. And look, I've, I've been preaching here 15 years and I have, I have tried so hard. Like when, I, when Casey and I chose to move to Memphis, we're like, we are not going to be those Texans who go somewhere else and always talk about how Texas is bigger and better. And I think I've done a pretty good job of that. But you know that Texans are so proud of their state, right? They love their state. So we can be committed to states and to a city. I've traveled around a little bit recently and people like take shots at John Moran of Memphis and I am, I'm so protective of everything Memphis. We're loyal to city, a state, we're loyal to our country, we're loyal to sports, we're loyal to celebrities, we're loyal to politics, politicians, we are loyal to ideology. So a couple of questions this morning for you. What does it mean to be kingdom people in a hostile world? And what does it mean to be kingdom people in the middle of culture wars? And they're all around us. Our kids are in them. Our grandkids are in them. 
and we can't ignore them. So here's the thing. Sometimes when I hear Christians say things like, the gospel is about individual freedom or personal rights or personal choices, which in many ways, part of America allows us to do that. But my thought, and I I know this sounds judgy, but in my head I'm thinking, I don't know if this is someone who has immersed themselves in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but this is someone who has been influenced by progressive politics. Or when I hear people say, Christians say, that we need to stand for Christian values, and then the next thing to come out of their mouth is we need to take stronger stances on abortion and homosexuality, which are issues that I still find myself more orthodox in. But when I hear those are the values that come out of their mouths right after they talk about Christian values, in my head what I'm thinking is I don't know if this is someone who is immersing themselves in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to model their lives after Jesus, but is this someone who has been significantly influenced by conservative politics? One of the greatest fights for Christians in America today is to keep Christ in the center of it all. And every day, this is a challenge for us. Because if we aren't careful, we let our issues inform how we think about Jesus instead of allowing Jesus to form how we think about the world and how we think about issues. Jesus doesn't need our help, but we need Jesus' help. And if there are cultural wars that we lose, the kingdom of God can still advance in the world. Like, do you believe that? Like, if there are some culture wars that you are passionate about and you lose, whatever you lose means, can the kingdom of God still advance in the world? And 2,000 years of Christianity tell us that it does and that it can. The kingdom of God advances no matter what is happening with cultures or how empires may crumble and fall. The kingdom of God keeps moving. So what I want to do this morning is I don't want to talk so much about issues. I want to talk about the principles that need to drive us no matter where we are on issues. And here's here's the thing, all right? You don't come to church to hear my political views, but I am convinced of this. And I'm going to slow down because sometimes I get super passionate about things and I talk real fast. I'm going to slow down when I say this. You don't come to church to hear my political views, but I am convinced that you need me and that we need each other and that we need the church to remind us of our mission in the world. Because if we don't repeat our mission, we will slowly forget it. And if we forget it, we will replace it. And when we replace it, it will probably be with something that is noble. And then we will wrap it in Christian language to make it sound Christian-y because none of us like to say that we have idols in our lives. Now, I know that's a really long run-on sentence, right? I'm going to say it again. (laughs) You don't come to church to hear my political views, but I'm convinced that you need me and we need each other and we need the church to remind us of what our mission is in the world. Because if we do not remind each other and repeat it regularly, consistently, we will slowly forget it. And when we forget it, we will replace it most likely with something noble, and when we replace it, we will wrap it in Christian language because none of us wants to admit that we have idols in our lives. So what kind of battle are we preparing ourselves to fight in the world? And how are we equipping ourselves? And who is our enemy? 
Andy Stanley, in his book, Not In It to Win It, great book, by the way, he says this, and here's a quote that will pop up on the screen. All Democrats are not morally corrupt, anti-God, anti-family, and anti-church, and all Republicans are not anti-voting rights, anti-healthcare, and anti-vaccine. Let's not participate in that type of labeling, because this kind of rhetoric divides American from America. American, it divides Christian from Christian as well. And I think we know that. And I also think we know that 2020 was one of the hardest years for many of our lives, especially those of us in leadership, especially leadership in the church. It was a heated presidential election season. Who's excited about the next one coming up here in just a few months? It was a heated presidential election season. Of course, COVID ended up getting wrapped in all kinds of politics. And there was so much social unrest. And the Lakers won the NBA championship. Like, it was an awful year. And if we were left... And we were left to like process all this by staring at screens. Like we're looking at screens as people are telling us what's happening in the world and as even church leaders are trying to process things, we're doing it all through screens. 2020 did not create division and animosity, it brought it to light. It revealed how much we love to win and how much we hate to lose. Andy Stanley says it like this. He says, and what does the evangelical church in America value most? Winning. And what do we fear? Losing. The problem I'm referring to, and this is Andy talking, he says the Achilles heel in modern evangelicalism is our obsession with winning. And don't you feel this in so much of life? Like, it's not just that we love to win, it's that we hate to lose, and we hate to lose to them. Like, for anybody in sports, like, there's some teams you're like, I'm okay losing to them, and then there's some teams you're like, I just don't want to lose to them. Like, when it comes to playing cards with friends, I am okay for Amy Bellamy beating me. I just don't want Brad Bellamy to beat me. (laughs) Like, when it comes to a March Madness staff bracket, I'm okay with Anna beating me. I just don't want Jim Hinkle to beat me. You know how this goes? Tim Keller says this. When the church as a whole is no longer seen as speaking to questions that transcend politics... And when it is no longer united by a common faith that transcends politics, then the world sees strong strong evidence that Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx were right. That religion is really just a cover for people wanting to get their way in the world. So I want to talk just for a moment about confession. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. And it's not so much like right now I'm wanting to blow your mind with with how the Bible talks about confession. But I hope something I say in the next couple of minutes about confession will change how you think about the New Testament when you see the word confession show up. So confession, if I were to ask you what comes to mind when you think about confession, you probably think about making a confession, taking a confession, or, or you think about confessing sins. But just for a moment, I want you to think about confession and how it goes along with conversion. Because when New, when New Testament Christians were surrendering their lives to Christ and they were being baptized, like they knew that conf- their confession in their conversion could have all kind of challenges that could come their way. Persecution. Socially, it could be a challenge for them. And conversion was to change or to alter. It was to make something different. It was not just to add a little bit of faith to your life. It was complete change. Shane Claiborne, in his book, Jesus for President, he says this. He says, we need conversion in the best sense of the word. People who are marked by the renewing of their minds and imaginations, who no longer conform to the pattern that is destroying our world. Otherwise, we have only believers, not converts. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says this. 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true and proper worship. And I love this right here. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and his perfect will. When you think about the word confess in the Bible, we probably think about confessing sins. And there are a few times this happens. If you know, if, just look at this next slide up here. Here are three, three times where you see confession of sins popping up in Scripture. In Matthew 3, and you also have this in Mark chapter 1, where confessing their sins, they were baptized by, this is John the Baptist in the Jordan River. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So this needs to be something thing we practice in our lives, confessing sins privately and even publicly. But here's the thing. I want you to see this next slide. Only four of the 26 times the word confess is used in the New Testament does it refer to confessing sins. The other 22, it's about allegiance. It's about declaration. So for early Christians, it would often go like this. I confess Jesus is the Lord of my life and nothing else is. I confess Jesus is the Lord of my life and Caesar's not. I confess Jesus is the Lord of my life and the Roman Empire is not. So for us, it may go, we confess Jesus is the Lord of our lives and Joe Biden's not or President, uh, Donald Trump is not or Barack Obama is not or Republican or Democratic Party or not or a preacher's not. Jesus is the Lord of my life and nothing, nothing else is. So I want you to notice a few times in Scripture that this happens. In John chapter 9, verse 22, it says his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who confessed that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. In John chapter 12, verse 42, it says, Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, and I'm just throwing some verses at you, it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess your faith and you are saved. And I'm going to read a few more. And as I was just studying this over the last few weeks, my heart was so moved to think the confession that early Christians made could have great consequences, but they did it anyway. And do you mind if I can just invite you to stand as I read a few of these verses? Will you just stand for a moment, if you're able? And I want you to hear this. 2 Corinthians 9, 13. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. In Philippians 2, 10 and 11, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In 1 Timothy 6, 12 through 13, it says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. In Hebrews 3.1, it says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we confess as our apostle and high priest. 
In Hebrews 4.14, it says, Therefore, since we have a good high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we confess. And Hebrews 13.15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly confess His name. And for the reading of the Word of God, the whole church said, Amen. You can be seated. The word confession is about swearing allegiance. It's a declaration concerning what I'm truly giving my life for. And I think this matters because we renew our confession with mission in mind, not just salvation in mind, because Jesus doesn't just want to be the forgiver of your sins. He wants to be the king of your life. He doesn't just want to be the forgiveness of sins. He's inviting you into a kingdom in which Jesus is king. So I'm calling this series that we're going to be in for a few weeks. I'm calling it Choreology. And I want to focus on the core, like the, just the core of faith. And I, I think about my own core. I've, I've shared before, I've, I've tweaked my back three different times in my life. And I've, I've never dealt with chronic pain. Every time I've tweaked my back, a week and a half later, I'm fine. One time I tweaked my back because I overdid an ab workout. And this is not a humble brag. This was a stupid thing I did. I, I thought I would challenge myself to see if I could do 10 minutes of crunches without stopping. And then talking to a physical therapist, he's like, dude, you should never try to do something like that. I hurt my back one time because I was in the uh, flower bed pulling out bushes and I was determined to win and I won, but I paid the price for it. And then I tweaked my back one time because I sneezed. <laughs> that was it. I think I've reached the age where you do things like this by sneezing. Right? Harvard research. So this is Harvard. We're talking about bright people. We're not talking about people from University of Texas or University of Alabama. We're talking about Harding, I mean Harvard. And Harvard research, it said it, they had a, a, a research a few years ago about how the core is the central link that connects your upper and lower body. And I don't think this is a surprise to any of you, but it was just pressing people that having a better core can make everything else in your body better. Your core helps with mobility and balance. To neglect your core can lead to back pain and all kinds of discomfort. And you think about the core of our faith, the core of our soul, the center of who we are, the kingship of Christ. If we neglect this core, we lose our center, we lose our balance, and we can hurt our witness. And when it comes to cancel, cancel culture and culture wars and presidential election seasons, it can be very easy for us to lose our core. Russell Moore says this. He says that we now see the young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church does not believe what the church teaches. So this idea of choreology, I don't, I don't want us to confuse where our allegiance lies I don't want us to spend valuable energy in fighting the wrong fights. I don't want us to create enemies that are not enemies of God. And I don't want us to lose our witness by things we say in comment sections on Facebook that we would never say to someone face to face, or by things we may say on TikTok, or by how we behave in the world. Eugene Cho, in his book, Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk, he says this, he says, when Christians, regardless of political leanings, behave like jerks and justify our behavior at all costs because of our ideological convictions, we bear false witness to Jesus Christ. Uh, so I want you to think just for a moment about highway strips. Right? And, and there's no data of how many lives these things have saved. And when you hit these strips and they rumble a little bit on the road, 
Like it's, this isn't telling you that you're lost. It's telling you you've veered off where you need to be just a little bit. So you don't need to overcorrect. It's just a little wake-up call to get back on track. And what I want to do in this series is just kind of place in front of you maybe some of these highway rumble strips. Like, hey, it can be so easy when you live in a culture with so many culture wars to just get off track a little bit which can lead us to get off track further. So there's seven principles I want us to work through over the next few weeks. And here they are. I tried to fit them all on one screen. Seven principles, and it's this. I will daily confess that Jesus is the Lord of my life and nothing else is. I will create and honor regular spiritual practices that remind me of my devotion to Jesus. I will choose to become a better listener to God and to other people. I will resist to allow any media outlet to become the primary way I think about culture and the world. I will strive to become a peacemaker. I will practice hospitality as a way to learn, grow, and invest in other people. And I will choose to regularly serve others. And I want to walk us through these principles as we continue to be a church that engages culture for the sake of Christ. David French He says this, he says, the culture war approach often confuses Christian power with biblical justice, and it creates incentives for Christians to not just seek power, but to feel a sense of failure and emergency when they are not in positions of cultural or political power. And the book of Ephesians talks a lot about power. And as I sweat my way off this stage today, I want to leave you with Ephesians 6 and how many times it talks about the word stand. In verse 11, in verse 13, and in verse 14, it's about standing. That you get dressed so that we stand on promises and for the world. And sometimes in communion, we get in our own personal space to remind us what Jesus has done. I want to challenge you, especially this morning, that communion should be the moment that opened your eyes to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. You know, the last time the word confess shows up in the Bible, it's actually in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, and it's Jesus who talks about it. And in Revelation 3, it's Jesus who says, those who stand strong, like those who stand firm on God, Jesus will confess your name to the Father. This is Jesus who's confessing your name in the heavens to the Father. So this morning, my wife Casey's going to be over here to receive you for prayer. Kim Chapman will be to my left. Matt Caskey, one of our shepherds, will be up front. Patrick Parson will be in the back. And I'll be down here to the left to receive you. What's your next step? If there's someone here who needs the place, you need to surrender to Jesus in baptism, we would love to talk with you about that. If there's something we can pray for for you, this is a moment for you as we connect to God and to each other. Will you bow your heads? Let's pray together. For God, in this moment, we are reminded of everything Jesus has done. And Jesus, you didn't die just to be for us to make you a fan or a mascot. You died for us to, for you to be the Lord of everything. So God, where there are places in our lives where that have not surrendered themselves to the Lordship of Jesus, we, we want to do that today. We want to confess our allegiance to Jesus and nothing else. And there's really no better place that we do that than with the bread and the cups. And now in this moment, God, we confess our allegiance to you. It's through Christ we pray.